Kyle Schweizer, and I'd like to thank you guys for joining us for the Journal Club today on Synesmotic Injuries. I'm joined with other moderators, uh, <clears throat> Andrew Mills, Matt Riedel, and Albert George um, out of Southern Illinois, uh, Yale, and Grand Rapids, and I'd like to thank them for helping us put this together um, and all the work that they did. Our faculty today, uh, we have three authors, uh, Prism Schneider, Anna Miller, and Mark Yakovanis, who will be presenting their research um, on different areas of the syndesmosis, including fixation, reduction, um, <clears throat> and the posterior malleolar component. And then we also are joined with a uh, guest lecturer, Lori Reed, who will be discussing kind of her views on the syndesmosis and how we can treat and fix them. Here's the agenda. We're going to cover three videos um, with authors and moderators discussing their papers. The first will be reducing the syndesmosis. The second will be uh, improved reduction uh, with a tightrope. And then the third will be how fixing the posterior malleolus is um, beneficial. After that, we'll talk with Dr. Reed and get some of her thoughts. And then we'll open it up and answer questions and do a discussion with all the faculty and finally wrap up. Uh, I'm Andrew Mills, um, and I have the pleasure of interviewing uh, Mark Yakovanis, and we're going to discuss uh, reducing the syndesmosis under direct vision. Uh, where should I look? Hi, thanks for having me, Andrew. Um, so I'm here to talk about a paper um, uh, that we uh, wrote about the syndesmosis. So the, the reason why uh, we paper is I think reducing the syndesmosis has always been a troublesome uh, area for most surgeons that deal with ankle fractures and syndesmotic injuries. And um, there's been somewhat controversy in how you reduce it, both fluoroscopically, whether you use the incisura. And the senior author to the paper uh, had a method where he would reduce it based upon the anterior joint surface of the ankle. And uh, what we wanted to do was to see how that compared versus the other uh, way of direct reduction, which would be the incisura. And so what we did is we used 10 cadaveric specimens and we sectioned the syndesmosis. Uh, and then we had a, a subset of surgeons reduce it both using the incisura as well as using the anterior joint line. And then we compared the two. And what we found was that when you use the anterior joint surface, so what we call the Mercedes sign, which is the joint surface about the fibula, uh, the uh, anterolateral tibia, um, uh, what we found is that when you use that as a reduction model, uh, you're over 90%, uh, I believe it was 94% accurate in reducing the osmosis versus uh, using the incisura. And then the second part of the paper was sort of determining why that is, why you'd be more accurate with uh, using the joint line. And what we found was that the anatomic variability or the variability in the width uh, of the incisura between the tibia and the fibula uh, was greater than that at the joint line. So we hypothesized and we sort of proved was that the joint line is more accurate because the width of the fibula and the tibia are more closely related at the joint line than they are uh, one centimeter proximal in the incisura. So, you know, I, I came up with some, or I had some questions for you. I mean, you know, whenever I read a paper like this, I want to know, like, is this the way that you still do it, I guess? Or sure, is this how sure. you do it in yeah, practice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you know, and then uh, the other thing that I always, always comes to mind when I think about, you know, this is, um, do you ever worry about putting this other incision on people or, you know, because it is, it is an, an additional incision compared to what people have traditionally done or what, you know, yeah. most people do. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, so there's very little I do in the operating room that I don't worry about. So that's, that's a loaded question. Um, yeah, I think, so absolutely adding an extra incision is worrisome. I think what I try to balance is I also worry about malreducing the syndesmosis. So, um, you know, in cases where I'm very concerned about it, uh, I, I think that the added benefit of having confidence in your reduction uh, outweighs the risk of that incision, whether it be skin issues or uh, a nerve injury. So, I, you know, I think that it's a balance. And um, your first question was, you know, do I still do this? And the answer to that is, yes, I still do it. I don't, I don't use it for every syndesmotic injury. So um, I think that I'm very selective in terms of which syndesmotic injuries I'll use it. And what I've found is that I'll more commonly use it on a Weber C fracture uh, where there's a syndesmotic injury uh, versus a Weber B with a syndesmotic injury. I found that when you use a Weber B, when you're fixing a Weber B fracture and there's a syndesmotic injury, for some reason I, th I think the uh, syndesmosis just tends to sit or aligns a little bit better versus there's a bit more instability with a Weber C fracture. So with a higher fibular fracture, um, I found that I'm using it more uh, uh, than for a lower fibula. Uh, I also tend to use it when I'm not, you know, for a younger, you know, somebody that I really want to make sure that I, I do everything possible to anatomically reduce uh, the syndesmosis. If there's any uh, any case where I'm worried about the skin or I'm worried about, you know, the patient's healing the skin uh, capacity, an older patient, renal patient, you know, of course, then uh, perhaps you, the risks outweigh the benefits. Uh, so I, I never, you know, certainly not an all or none, uh, but what I do use it as whenever there's any confusion or even if radiographically in the middle of the case, I'm just not entirely confident uh, I think it's a great bailout option or an option that I virtually will go to uh, to sort of, you know, double check and make sure that I'm, I'm doing it exactly right. Okay. Yeah. So, so more likely to do it in a Weber C young patient, less likely to do it in a Weber B older, sicker patient. Exactly. Right. Skin compromised. So. Got it. So you mentioned uh, fluoroscopic checks. So, you know, um, let's say it's a situation where you ha you're fixing the syndesmosis and, you know, do you, do you do the floor, um, uh, you know, which one takes primacy, I guess, for you? you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I always like, uh, as I'm sure most people do to uh, sort of double check both. So things should always add up. So if you anatomically reduce it with a direct reduction, fluoroscopically, it should look correct. And so, if those don't add up, I will double check, you know, both and see perhaps there's rotation in the, uh, the fluoroscopy or perhaps during the fixation, I lost some of the reduction. So I'll always double check both. But I think the crux of the issue you're saying is which one do I have more confidence in? Uh, and I, I mean, the direct reduction, I would say I have more confidence in. Um, I think that, you know, personally, I, I just feel like 
you know, seeing it directly reduced, I'd have more confidence than I found that with fluoroscopy, there's a lot of rotational changes or things that might, you know, might give you a false sense of confidence or a false sense of uh, um, uh, uh, peril. Um, so I'd have more confidence probably or definitely in the reduc direct reduction, but I'd like them both to add up. And certainly if they aren't adding up together, I would check both. I gotcha. All right. One other thing I wanted to ask, you know, uh, you, they mentioned, you know, you mentioned in the paper the use of 3D imaging in the operating room, and I've heard that advocated for before. Yeah. You know, do you think that, um, I guess so, if we, you know, project ourselves 20 years into the future, do you think this will still be something that we do if everybody has access to, to like a 3D CT scan? Yeah, I mean, I certainly, I certainly think that it will because, um, you know, particularly with an OR, there are, there definite costs associated with that, both yeah. operating room time. Now you can make the argument that a separate incision is going to take some time, but uh, you know, really small incision. And once you do it, you get pretty facile um, and bringing in a no arm, uh, protecting everybody from the radiation. I, you know, I, I think that, uh, I think that there's, there may be an argument for that, but particularly in my hands, I think there's going to have to be a very strong argument because I think the direct reduction uh, has a very strong role and it's something I'm very comfortable with. And, you know, I, perhaps the, they'll find a way to do the OR very efficiently, but I, I, I don't know how that's going to happen. I think it's going to be very slow. And uh, this is something that I'm very comfortable with. I think most surgeons would be very fast uncomfortable with after doing it a couple of times. Yeah, no, it definitely seems like it because it doesn't seem like it's much of a skin incision. Correct. It seems like it's a pretty good bridge and it gets you right down there. Plus, if, if, it seems if you're comfortable operating around the foot and ankle, the, the nerve issue is not something, I mean, something you're worried about, but you know, not something that's causing you undue anxiety. Exactly. Um, as long as you're aware, as, if you're aware of it, you know, if you're aware that that is a potential complication and you're very careful, then. Uh, you should be able to avoid the uh, uh, long-term effects. Okay. All right. Well, um, you know, I guess, um, I guess the last question I'd have would just be, you know, what was the, what was the most interesting thing that you thought you learned on this paper? What, you know, what was the big thing that you got out of it? If, if you could point to one thing that you learned, I mean, maybe you said it already, but. Yeah, no, I, I I think the biggest thing that I learned uh, uh, or the biggest thing that I gained from it was having uh, a great deal of confidence. Uh, so I, I know that, um, you know, uh, I, I just, I feel when I do the direct reduction uh, and I leave the OR, I, I just have, a, you know, a significant amount more confidence that uh, it is correctly reduced. And I think so it's not necessarily learn something, but I just, I have much more uh, a self-assurance when I perform that, that, that everything is, is correctly aligned than I, I would have, uh, you know, otherwise. Um, so I, I think that when you see, you know, uh, you know, perhaps you're less likely to get, and I don't routinely, but you're like, I'd be less likely to routinely get a post-operative CT to look for the syndesmotic alignment or that. I just gain a lot more confidence. I know that's uh, so if ever I'm struggling uh, and you need something to sort of just reassure you that you've correctly reduced, 
uh, I know that this is in my bag of tricks and that it's a, a great tool. Yeah. No, I thought this was a great paper. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to say uh, thanks for your time and, uh, you know, thanks for uh, agreeing to be uh, interviewed and uh, adding your uh, voice to this discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone, good evening. My name is Matt Riedel. Uh, this is part of the AO Trauma Journal Club session where this uh, session is on syndesmosis injuries. I'm proud to introduce uh, Prism Schneider. She's an Associate Professor of Orthopedic Trauma at University of Calgary, and that's in uh, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. She's the author of a study entitled Improved Reduction of the Tibiofibular Syndesmosis with Tightrope Compared to Screw Fixation, Results of a Randomized Controlled Trial. It was published in JOT in 2019, and I'd like to thank you for joining us tonight to discuss the paper, Dr. Schneider. Great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> My first question for you is, is why did you guys decide to do this study? Why, why did, what proposed it uh, for you guys? Yeah, thanks very much uh, for the opportunity to chat about our research, of course, and I think the motivation for this study really spanned the entire uh, COTS group, so Canadian Orthopedic Trauma Society, and we recognized that there was still this residual very high malreduction rate of syndesmotic injuries. Um, you know, literature at that time was over 50% malreduction rates of the syndesmosis. And there was fairly good literature to support that even a malreduction of two millimeters, pretty small malreduction, um, could really impact functional outcomes. And so we started to pose the question, you know, why would we sort of think that dynamic stabilization wouldn't make more sense in uh, crossing a joint. So with static stabilization using screws, of course, we're limiting that natural motion that occurs between the tibia and the fibula. And so I think this was a unified question clean across our country that led us to uh, really study this in a systematic way. That's awesome. And one question that I had, I know you only studied um, uh, syndesmosis injuries that had been stabilized with the plate and screws. Did you find any issues with length stability with, with the tightrope? Yeah, so that's a fantastic question. And I, I do think it's an area for future and some ongoing research at the moment. And so I think that's a really important point in our inclusion criteria. So what we did was we did randomize patients preoperatively to either static or dynamic stabilization. And then the first step was actually stabilizing um, any malleoli fractures. So if there's a medial malleolus fracture that was stabilized first. And certainly if there was, you know, these were Weber C, AO, OTA 44, C type fractures. So we had to stabilize the length relationship before proceeding to uh, stabilizing the syndesmosis. We did have to ensure that once we had fibular length um, and the medial malleal injury was uh, stabilized, that there was still instability. As you know, sometimes we get it wrong preoperatively with our radiographs. Um, and so we had to ensure that there was still um, at least two millimeters of displacement between the tibia and the fibula to uh, define dynamic instability of the syndesmosis and then proceed with the treatment that they've been randomized to. Um, that is an important distinction because we did not include patients that had, say, a high proximal fibular fracture where it wasn't fixed surgically, so there would be that length instability. 
but there's some ongoing research and some work that we're doing, and I know in other groups as well, where we're looking at the utility of using dynamic stabilization with two uh, tight ropes or dynamic stabilizing suture buttons placed divergently to help address some of that length stability um, issue, because I think that is a really important point with a single dynamic stabilizer. There is concern that there can be um, displacement of the uh, length unstable fibula. Yeah, I think that's a great point. That's one thing that I do. I'll often make two points of fixation, whether I use dynamic or static stability, and make them a bit divergent in the A to P plane um, for, for that reason. I noticed that you uh, you guys proposed three cortices versus four cortices. Is that a standard of practice at, at your institution? Yeah, also fantastic. One of the wonderful things about the COTS group is there's lots of debate uh, with protocol development prior to beginning a study, and that certainly was an area of discussion. Um, there are definitely practice uh, pattern preferences for sure. Um, it seemed to be that that was more standardized across Canada. We did not propose a routine removal of screws, um, and so we've decided on the tricortical uh, fixation. Uh, it is interesting to note some other studies that do compare uh, dynamic stabilization with screw fixation have used quadricortical uh, screw uh, fixation and have found very, very similar, if not identical, results to what we've reported. And that leads into the next question I had for you was the hardware removal rates. I know that you had noted some surgeons uh, electively remove the screws, some surgeons elected to remove them only if the patient had an issue. Is that surgeon dependent or is that uh, there is there a standard that you guys follow? Yeah, an excellent question again. And so we've tried to encourage surgeons for protocol purposes to maintain the uh, screw fixation until at least one year, which was our final follow-up. Mm -hmm. However, some certainly elected to um, based on patient symptoms and things, and we certainly didn't dictate that that was mandatory. Um, so we did have some screws uh, that were removed on an elective basis. But what's interesting to note is uh, despite that, our reoperation as well as the hardware removal rate was significantly higher higher at 30% in the screw group compared to only 4% in our uh, tightrope group. Um, I will also take note of the paper by Anderson et al. And so that was in JBJS the year preceding our paper. And interestingly, this was a two-center RCT. They used a single screw and a single tightrope. Um, and they actually planned screw removal for all of their patients. And kind of regardless of that, there was still, um, you know, a difference in their reoperation and complication rate in favor of the tightrope group. Um, so that's just an interesting thing to note. So I would say Canadian practice right now is still a little bit variable, but for the most part, unless the patient is symptomatic, we are leaving our syndesmotic screws if they're used uh, in situ. Okay, so you can say that that increased hardware removal rate was due to patient symptoms and not necessarily surgeon preference? Correct. I think there is a bit of a combination, but to tease that out, it was more that the patient was symptomatic enough to warrant removal. Good. Perfect. I know you followed the patients for 12 months. Anecdotally, do you have any longer-term follow-up on, on any of those patients? Thank you for asking that anecdotally, uh, because we have continued to follow our patients along uh, for longer term here at the lead site in Calgary. We've actually performed CT scans at one year, um, and I'm excited to tell you about some additional imaging that we're doing um, as well. And so one of the initial concerns with the dynamic stabilization was maybe loosening over time. And so we have been able to demonstrate in our cohort that that isn't the case, that the dynamic stabilization reduction is maintained 
maintained at least at a year, and we are trying to follow these patients um, longer term, we have that manuscript under review at the moment. That's really cool. If you could do the study over again, is there anything you would change or do different, either protocol or just, uh, you know, through the experience of doing it, looking back? Yeah, fantastic question. I think that whenever you're doing a multi-site randomized trial, there's always so much to be learned and things that you would improve upon. Um, it is interesting, I think, collectively as an orthopedic trauma group, one of our challenges is longer-term follow-up. So ideally, of course, we'd follow these patients for five, ten years. That definitely lends itself to some challenges when you're looking at funding agencies and, and getting support for these studies. And that's, that's a big barrier, I think, to some of our longer-term research. So ideally, we certainly would have had longer-term uh, follow-up. And what was interesting to note about our study was our primary outcome was actually malreduction rate based on the CT scan at three months. So we acknowledged that we were underpowered to uh, measure a difference uh, in patient reported outcome measures. Uh, we did use the uh, FADI, so the Foot and Ankle Disability Index and the Olerud Mullender score. And so we did do a post hoc sample and uh, size calculation, and we do require about 250 patients in order to, to look at that functional outcome difference. So that would be nice as well. The only thing that I would say that's quite interesting is, again, choosing that outcome measure appropriately. So again, the Anderson group, a very similar sample size, um, followed for two years, and their primary outcome was actually the AOFAS, so the American Orthopedic Foot and Ankle uh, society score, and they were actually able to show a significant difference in a patient population of just over 100 patients. So following these patients a little bit longer, really ensuring that we're using the proper uh, patient-reported outcome measures, I think is really important. That's great. And I have to commend you guys, you had 85% follow-up at a year, which uh, I don't know if that's Canadian patients behaving or or <laughs> you guys just have patients that really enjoyed seeing you guys but that was, that was i like great. that maybe we'll go with the latter but no we do pride ourselves <laughs> in our follow-up we try really really hard we know it's important <laughs> and, and i know we touched on this but any future directions i know you said it's currently in process with with longer term follow-up but any further ideas or thoughts that you guys have had as a group going forward from from this study yeah, I appreciate that question because we are really excited in a, a branch of research that we've been undertaking. We have had the opportunity to present some preliminary findings at the OT meetings. Um, we are using 4D CT, so that actually allows us to observe a patient uh, taking their ankle through a full range of motion. Because I think one of our limitations right now is all of our intraoperative imaging, all of our cast clinic follow-up imaging is all static. And this is really a dynamic problem and the complaints that the patients have are very much dynamic in nature and so we're learning a lot by actually using this dynamic CT so we now have a group of patients uh, outside of this uh, RCT so screw and tightrope fixation we're actually looking at posterior malleolar fixation as well and so that's really helping us to evaluate reduction um, through an entire range of motion. And a little sneak peek, I guess, on that is we certainly are showing the potential advantages are carrying through for dynamic stabilization of the syndesmosis throughout a range of motion. And, you know, that really does lend itself to the findings of improved patient-reported outcome. Fantastic. Well, I thank you a lot. These were great discussion points. I think I look forward to seeing what the, uh, what the participants have in terms of other questions for you. Um, but are there any parting thoughts or, or mentions that you wanted to make about the study or, or just the syndesmosis in general? 
I, I think you've actually highlighted it, the fact that uh, there's still such an area of need with length, unstable fractures, with new technologies, with new imaging sources. And so I really do think that we still have a lot to learn in this area and it would be great to do that collaboratively because that's the way to really, I think, get to the bottom of a lot of uh, improvements that are yet to come for our patients. Absolutely, I agree. Well, thank you for your time. I look forward to the discussion that we'll have uh, coming forward. And thank you again for joining us. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm here with uh, Dr. Anna Miller from Washington University of St. Louis. Uh, she's coming to talk about her paper on posterior malleolar stabilization of syndesmotic injuries is equivalent to screw fixation. Uh, Dr. Miller, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so first question I had is kind of what, what the story behind the study was. I know there's some previous studies before this and some, some studies that came after this out of, uh, out of HSS and uh, just curious what that, what that whole uh, background was. Sure. Um, maybe the most studied joint in the entire body in trauma. Um, I think we've all had maybe a little too much of the syndesmosis, but I was a resident, um, Mike Gardner, who's now at Stanford, was a couple years ahead of me, and he had worked with Dean Lorich um, on this kind of topic originally, and they had some papers where they kind of looked at malreduction and how maybe we're not doing as good of a job as we think um, of repairing the syndesmosis, and Essentially, the idea behind it was if we're fixing most joints to make them a perfect reduction, why are we not doing that for things like the syndesmosis? And maybe some people would also argue things like the SI joint or the symphysis in the pelvis. So Dr. Lorich um, was a very innovative guy, one of my biggest mentors who we all miss um, but he always was kind of thinking outside the box. And he thought, again, if we know that we're doing a bad job of fixing the syndesmosis with screws and it's not anatomic, then maybe it would be better if we just fixed the actual piece that's broken, which is usually the posterior malleolus attached to the PITFL. And um, they're very lucky at HSS because they have Hollis Potter and the most amazing musculoskeletal radiology department. And they also have an amazing group of people who do MRIs. So he had kind of an ongoing research project getting MRIs in a lot of ankle and tibial plateau fractures. So we got a lot of information and a lot of papers came out from that group about what is actually injured in the soft tissue, because obviously we focus on the fracture and we kind of don't think about the soft tissue attached to it all the time. And what they found was that the vast majority of the time, the PITFL itself is intact and it's still attached to that dangling little posterior malleolus piece. And then there were some other studies that we talk about in our paper that are much older studies that are actually more in the sports literature where they looked anatomically at the syndesmosis and essentially found that the posterior inferior tibial ligament is probably the strongest part of the syndesmosis and the most important. So if we repair that, the theory is fixing the posterior malleolus, thereby repairing that will be just as strong and maybe we don't have to do screws and we don't have to poorly anatomically fix them. 
So um, we kind of did two congruent papers because they had already shown that we're doing a bad job, but we wanted to kind of prove that it actually works. So there was another paper around the same time as this one, I forget which one came out first, in one of the foot and ankle journals where we actually looked at whether we directly reduced that piece and then got post-op CTs. <clears throat> and indeed, we found that if you fix that piece anatomically and then get a CT versus fixing them with syndesmotic screws, we are much better at it. So it makes sense that if you're putting a piece back, you're gonna do a more anatomic job. But what we didn't know is, and that was the point of the paper that you and I are discussing, does it matter to the patients? Because again, a lot of these things we've been doing for decades, syndesmotic screws have been put in people for many, many years, and people seem to do pretty well. So does it really matter if we have a more anatomic CAT scan? And what this paper showed that you and I are discussing is that indeed the patients did have better functional outcomes and that is actually the bigger thing that we wanted to prove. The problem, of course, with this paper is that it is a really small group. And I think there has been a lot more literature after it that you know has looked into this, but that was the original idea. Like first, we know that fixing it anatomically is better on CAT scan. Now, can we show that it's better for patients? And it is, however, um, there's a weird group in there, which is patients who kind of had both. And I actually asked Dr. Lorich because, you know, he was a guy that, like many of us orthopedic surgeons, had kind of a big ego. And every once in a while, you have to poke him so that he, um, you know, would kind of spar with you. So when we were talking, I was like, okay, if you really believe that fixing the posterior malleolus is just as good as syndesmotic screws, then why do you have all these patients with both? And he was like, I'll be totally honest with you, Anna. I didn't totally trust it. So he had to prove it to himself too. So that was kind of cool to see that like, you know, even he didn't totally think he knew all the answers until he had proven it. So that's kind of where the paper came from. And I think it really helped us believe that the anatomic fixation also is potentially better for patients functionally. It's really interesting. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So I, when I read this, I thought I had interpreted it as it's equivalent or was there actually a functional outcome difference in people who had syndes um, posterior malfixation versus just um, syndesmotic fixation alone? You're right. It really does show that it's equivalent more than not better. And I keep saying better because it, like it has the combination of being better radiographically and equally functional. So um, it is not, we did not show in this small group that functional outcomes were better. And, you know, I think the other argument about the paper is that maybe FAOS score is not the best outcome score to use. It's just that these patients had all had that, so that's what we used. But, you know, I think they're more follow-up with more specific functional outcomes, more patient-reported outcomes is probably even more important. You know, them telling us how they feel versus us telling them how they should feel um, could you know, really help tell the answer to that. And then, of course, if we had more patient numbers, which at this point we obviously would because a lot of us are treating these 
this way, but early on, that was all the patients that we had. So it was kind of, you know, just those first sets that had been done. At that moment in time, you say within the orthopedic trauma community, how uh, was there, how many other people were fixing the posterior mal um, uh, in, in like in the way of avoiding to having to do syndesmotic fixation? Was that um, it was really uncommon. Um, how I couldn't tell you an exact number, but this paper was actually chosen that year. I was my first ever podium presentation at the OTA was this paper. Um, I was super nervous, and Dr. Tornetta gave a talk right before me on one of his papers. And I sat down and I was like, I'm sitting by Paul Tornetta. This is so cool. And he was like, good job, but, da, da, da. and of course he had his own complaints about the paper, but, um, you know, I think it was very controversial, and, you know, as a resident, I just lucked into it in the timeline, because they had been progressing through it, but everybody kind of thought it was ridiculous at first, like, why would we switch away from syndesmotic screws, that little piece is so tiny, what's the point of fixing it, the historic literature always said, you don't fix a posterior malleolus until it's greater than 25% of the joint. But when I talk about this now with our residents, and if I go give a talk on ankles, the 25% was a historic number based on axial load, like a pilon fracture, and that is the size of the joint that would give the patient instability for the entire posterior part of the joint not existing anymore, which is a completely different conversation than a rotational ankle injury with the PITFL avulsed off. I mean, the posterior malleolus avulsed off with the PITFL. So you're comparing apples and oranges when you start talking about the 25% thing. So we're talking about much smaller posterior malleolus fragments that are a rotational avulsion injury and fixing those anatomically. And nobody had really done that before, as far as I'm aware. Um, before Dr. Lorich started thinking about that and doing it anatomically. And then, um, you know, you mentioned there's that group that got combined um, posterior mount and syndesmotic fixation. I believe those are all patients with fracture dislocations. Yeah. Has that changed over time? These patients with fracture dislocations were um, either for, uh, for him or for you, were they, did they keep getting syndesmotic fixation at the same rate or that uh, decrease over time? Definitely a decrease. So um, that was kind of part of our conversation. But now I don't fix any of them with syndesmotic screws unless there's something else going on. Like if they have really bad diabetes and I just want more solid fixation, I'll do it as an additional, you know, vest over suspenders or whatever. But um, he literally just did it because he didn't trust his own guess about what was happening and once that was proven and all these studies were done he did not do the combination anymore as a routine and i don't if they have a fracture dislocation or you know just a fracture i think if the fracture is fixed and the ankle stable i don't add extra syndesmotic screws to me that doesn't really make sense unless there's something else going on what would what would you say are the major takeaways from the study I would say um, major takeaways are that if we consider a posterior malleolus fixation, 
we know it's more anatomic and we certainly have at least equal outcomes functionally, according to the FAOS, comparing posterior fixation and syndesmotic screws. So certainly I would encourage everyone to consider anatomic fixation of the posterior mullulus when it's feasible. Yeah, thank you very much for, for joining us. I uh, really enjoyed this and uh, I'm sure everybody else listening is gonna enjoy this and um, looking forward to the discussion we're gonna have on the live session. Yes, hopefully I can make it. Thank you again for having me and um, we'll enjoy the discussion. All right, so that was uh, that was good. We've got some questions that we'll go over kind of at the end um, through our discussion and answer with the authors. Um, but right now, I was going to talk with Lori uh, Reed um, about some of her thoughts on the syndesmosis um, and kind of touch on maybe some areas that we didn't cover uh, with these papers. Um, so, Lori, thanks again for being here. Um, what, uh, how are you, um, how are you diagnosing a syndesmotic injury intraop? Like, what test are you using? Because there's a few out there, and the residents always ask me, like, which one I prefer. But what, how are you reduce, or how are you um, determining if there's actually an injury? Well, I use the external rotation test. Um, I haven't used the cotton test for a long, long time. I just feel like the external rotation test tends to be a bit more functional than uh, sort of what you do during a cotton test, but. Okay. Um, and then once you've determined that someone has a syndesmotic injury, do you, um, like, are you opening and reducing these? Are you doing it closed? How are you making that assessment of when you're gonna do either one? Yeah, so I guess what I always start with is getting, if there, if the other side isn't injured, I always start with contralateral imaging. So we always get a mortise view and a lateral view of the contralateral ankle, and I try to match it closed. And if I can't match it closed, then I open it. Um, how do I look at it? You know, it kind of depends. I don't, I am very not dogmatic, unfortunately, but um I do think you get a more accurate reduction by looking at the anterolateral corner of the ankle uh, versus the incisura. Sometimes the incisura is so uh, shallow, it's a little bit hard, particularly if they're really unstable. Sometimes you can put that, you can put the fibula anywhere if their anterior and posterior syndesmotic ligaments are out. And so for sure, then I'll look at the anterolateral corner to make sure I've got it okay. And are you looking that on fluoro? Or are you doing a, an open approach to look at it? Yeah, open approach. If I if I can't match them closed on fluoro, if the you know if the if the injured side doesn't look exactly like the other side, then I will open it. And are you doing a separate small incision, or are you kind of sneaking over from your lateral incision? Yeah, so I sneak over from the lateral incision. Usually I don't make a separate incision. Um, I kind of J the distal aspect of it. I make it a little bit, I bring the incision a little bit further distal and then J it anterior and just lift a full thickness flap. Just taking care, you know, I think that's, I do that. That's sort of how I get to Chaput fragments as well. Um, but you can get there pretty easily. Just be careful that you're not lifting off 
uh, ligaments when you're right. doing that or making your own syndesmotic uh, injury. Now, I, I have no, I, I'm, I don't see much of a downside of doing a separate anterolateral approach. This is just kind of how I've always done it. Yeah. And that, and, and that was a question that was proposed. Um, and I was going to ask the rest of the authors about it too, how they do it. I, I curve it like you anteriorly along the sinus tarsi. And that was, I think that's an important, if you're going to come from the lateral side, I think that's an important technical thing to understand that, you know, you, it's hard to raise that, to move that skin flap enough over the anterior aspect of the ankle to see without that kind of anterior curve uh, to lift that skin flap. So. And I truthfully, if I, if I, think that I might do that looking at their initial imaging I I'll make a more straight lateral incision versus I tend to use a more poster lateral incision but if I if I think I'm going to sneak over the top and J that incision distal um, I'll I'll make kind of a straight lateral incision and I feel I feel like it's just a little bit easier to get there yeah um how how aggressive are you with fixing posterior malfractures that aren't kind of that traditional like larger fragments yeah i don't know i wish somebody would give me an answer as to if you measured this this is what you should fix because i look at a lot of them that are you know smaller and smaller and smaller i don't do i don't fix all of them like anna does um i wish i wish i had a great answer that i could tell you this is exactly what i fix um if I think it certainly, if it's big enough, I don't, I also don't, you know, certainly smaller than 20% of the joint surface. Um, if there's anything sort of intervening fragments that I don't think I'm going to get the posterior mal aligned, um, particularly if there are intervening fragments that, that are um, prominent and I feel like are going to put any pressure on the talus, then I definitely will open that posterior, you know, op open the posterior lateral approach or, you know, address that, flip the fragment back as best I can and take those intervening fragments out. Um, I will say that, you know, I went from, I finished residency in 2004 and we never fixed, we never did any direct approaches to the posterior to the posterior mal that I remember. Um, and then everybody's kind of started doing them. And so, you know, I started doing more and more and fixing smaller and smaller fragments. And, you know, if Anna is on this, uh, maybe she can, maybe she can talk about this a bit, but I don't think it's a completely benign approach. Um, I sometimes have problems with people getting their dorsiflexion back after doing that approach. And I think I'm careful. I mean, you have to take as much of the FHL off of the fibula as you have to take off to um, get to that get to that posterior fragment. Sometimes it's a bit more than you think, depending on how high that fragment is elevated and if you're going to, you know, put an anti glide plate back there. So, um, I, you know. I started doing them more and more and I started putting them on smaller fragments and then. I sort of had some patients that had a tough time getting their ankle dorsiflexion back. They just were stiff or they had some tightness in their FHL. So I've kind of gone back the other direction and I probably don't fix as many as I did for a while. And, you know, I, I, I didn't answer a great question. I didn't answer probably anyone's question there, but um, I do think it's better. You know, I, I think for sure you're going to get your reduction of your syndesmosis more anatomic if you fix that 
um, postromalleolar fragment. I just don't know exactly which ones are the right ones to, you know, fix. And I, I don't fix the little tiny ones. Yeah. I mean, that's a tough, uh, that, I don't think that has fully been answered. You know, there are papers out there that show it. It's the biomechanical stability is better than with the fix yeah. of the screws. And there's some smaller papers that show the functional benefits. Um, I'm pretty aggressive with posterior malleolar fractures, but it, it like, uh, again, it's hard to know, like, you know, some I'm using sometimes some arbitrary stuff that I've come up with, like age, like how old are they? Like if they're in their fifties yeah. or sixties, I'm not going to be as aggressive as someone in their twenties. Yeah. Comminution, things like that. And so that, that's a tough question. And, um, yeah, I appreciate you trying to answer it. Um, Sorry, I made more questions and answers on that one, but. Um, what do you think has changed in your practice in the past five years in regards to the syndesmosis? Yeah, so I use more flexible fixation. I was really, I wouldn't say I was against it, but I'm a little old school. I don't really usually jump on the bandwagon of all of these sort of new things. Um, but I do use more flexible fixation. I don't use it in everyone. Uh, I tend to use it in younger patients, certainly athletic patients. I'm at an uh, indigent trauma center that we have a ton of uh, not healthy and uh, bigger people that, you know, they walk and that's all they do. They don't play sports. They don't, you know, I joke, but, you know, they like if they're running, they're running from the cops. They're not like playing tennis or playing football. So that's my patient population. If I had a patient population that I was taking care of more sports injuries, I probably would use more flexible fixation. Um, you know, I, I certainly put it in, uh, you know, young kids that come in with, you know, that have ankle fractures from sporting injuries or, or, uh, you know, um, patients that have, uh, I guess, yeah, any, anybody that's younger. So that's probably the biggest thing that has changed. But I will tell you that I still probably use, I, I rarely use two points of flexible fixation. I almost always put a screw in and I rarely, rarely take screws out. And I just saw a kid today who is a football player. He's going into his senior year that my goal was to take, you know, I put a syndesmonic screw, I put flexible fixation in, my goal was to take a syndesmonic screw out at four months. He said, I'm not interested, my ankle doesn't hurt, I'm doing great. It's hard for me to talk that patient into going back to the operating room to take that syndesmonic screw out. I saw him today, he's six months out, he broke his syndesmonic screw, he doesn't care, his ankle doesn't hurt. So. I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to go back in and, and again, you know, try to talk him into taking a syndesmotic screw out. Now I will go back in and take syndesmotic screws out if people have pain or if they have problems with their ankle dorsiflexion. And I think um, John Kett's paper a couple of years ago showed that patients definitely do better if they have intact syndesmotic screws and they have pain if you take their syndesmotic screw out. So I don't plan to do it. It's not sort of in my protocol, but if anybody has problems with anterolateral ankle pain or has problems getting their ankle dorsiflexion, I'm, I will more, than, you know, I'll certainly take a syndesmotic screw out. Okay. And then I one thing- we did... Their ankle at the same time, but I do a lot of foot and ankle, so whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what, uh, one thing we haven't touched on is uh, post-op protocol. So what are you doing with these patients post-op? When are you letting them move? When are you letting them weight bear? Things like that. 
Yeah, so if they are, you know, relatively healthy patient um, that I sort of trust, um, I, I splint them all for two weeks. I keep them all non-weight bearing for two weeks. If they have a syndesmotic injury, I can, I'm, I'm pretty um, conservative. I still keep them non-weight bearing for at least eight weeks. Some people do less than that. I, I get it. Um, but I I'm, tend to be relatively conservative. But when I see them back at two weeks, I put them in a boot. Um, I just teach them range of motion exercises on their own at home. Um, I have a lot of patients that don't have insurance that can't get to physical therapy. And so I just teach them uh, on their own at home. And then once they can start weight bearing, that's sort of when I send them to physical therapy, if they have access to it. If it really seems like it, it's six weeks that they are struggling to get their motion, I'll send them to therapy a little early. Okay. Well, thanks for yeah. talking with us and answering some questions. If we can get the, um, the rest of the faculty uh, and moderators to turn on their cameras and, um, We'll kind of ask some questions. Uh, some will be specific to kind of individual papers, and some will be just to the general, you know, population about what are you guys, you know, doing with these. Um, we had two questions um, for uh, Dr. Yakovanis on, you know, we and Lori and I kind of talked about it. Do you are you making a separate anterior lateral incision, or are you sneaking it over? Yeah, so uh, this was this is largely covered, you know, it's covered. Um, I, I also do the J. So I sort of determine a little bit preoperatively um, if it's going to be necessary. And so I less commonly will find it uh, necessary to uh, do an open reduction in a, in a Weber B fracture. Uh, but if you are worried about that, that's when I would try to J that anteriorly. So you can sort of flip it over versus what I typically do is a more posterior incision and it's really hard to gain access and if you're more posterior posterior lateral you'd need to do that separate anterior incision now for the Weber C if you're you know if you're going to fix the fibula um, uh, then I, I do do a separate incision so uh, more commonly it is a separate anterior lateral incision uh, if it's going to be a Weber B, then I would, as you guys have discussed, J it a little bit anteriorly to make it to make it easier to access. Any other faculty do anything different when they have to open it? Okay. I think everyone is worried. You know, the question was probably pr proposed because they're worried about that skin bridge um, <clears throat> for the two incisions on the ankle. Um, I don't know that if you're ever in a situation where you've made an incision and you think you now need to open it and you can't really get to it without doing a separate incision, there's there are some papers out there that show that it's pretty safe to make those incisions. It's hard to be in that traditional kind of, you know, seven centimeter bridge stuff in the foot and ankle. Um, it really more depends on length of the incisions and the the angiosomes in that area are pretty safe if your interlateral incision is small. Um, so if that was kind of the thought process behind, you know, do you make a separate incision? It is okay to do that. You just, you know, just have to respect the soft tissues while you're doing it. Yeah, it's well, also, I... it's become more common to scope, you know, to scope a lot of ankle fractures, uh, and, uh, you know, you're, extend, you're only extending that maybe one more centimeter if you're going to do an open approach. So. Yeah. 
One, one thing I like to talk to my residents about is the overlap. So the overlap of the incisions, a ratio of one to 1.5. So if you're overlapped a centimeter, as long as they're a centimeter and a half apart, those angiosomes can get in uh, and, and supply that, that skin bridge. So it, it matters, you know, if they're overlapped a whole amount, then that's a big problem. If they're barely overlapped, that corner is not going to be a problem. Yeah, I think there's some there's some literature in plastic surgery with their um, you know rotational uh, 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 skin flaps that I think if the smaller incision if the bridge is uh, half of is greater than half of the length of the smaller incision they should be fairly safe. Yep. And then uh, Prism, there was a question uh, for you in your paper on. Um, how did your team decide on CT measurements and directionality, like whether that is a two millimeter or 10 degrees of rotation, like in, in, that defined your malreduction? Yeah, thanks very much. Um, as I sort of mentioned in the video, there was a lot of hashing out the protocol prior to beginning the study, and this was obviously a, a, another point of discussion for sure. And certainly the literature at, at that time uh, supported you know, either that two millimeter displacement or uh, 10 degrees of malrotation. So that's what we selected. Um, Cloud Sagi has a paper in JOT. There's quite a bit of support throughout the um, foot and ankle sports literature for those parameters. And so that's what we, uh, that's what we endeavor to use as our criteria. And it's important to note we said or, so it was one or the other was defined as a malreduction. Um, I have a question for uh, Dr. Miller. Um, are you as are you fixing all posterior mouth still? Like, is that are you being that aggressive, or have you kind of swung away from some of them, or what's your approach in that situation? So I think this is I'll add on what Lori was kind of talking about earlier. I didn't know if I was supposed to jump in or not, but yes, in general, but. I do not fix them in the elderly. So if they, I guess I should say physiologically elderly. So, um, you know, if they're a really sick patient elderly, I don't wanna put them prone or on their side. I'm gonna put in syndesmotic screws, even if they have a posterior malleolus, unless it's that greater than 20% one that really is gonna dislocate out the back if you don't fix it. So I don't fix them in the elderly, but generally anybody who I can see a piece that's displaced on the CT, I will fix. Somebody in the chat asked and I replied to it if um, I'm using suture anchors or like, you know, some people use soft tissue washers for just an avulsed like POTFL without even really a big enough piece to fix. And for me, I don't fix those with soft tissue fixation. So I would only fix it if it's actually big enough but I do think um, your point is really good, Lori, about the you know, difficulty moving afterwards and people getting like a stiff big toe where they can't pull their big toe up and it drives them crazy. So um, I, I have seen that, obviously, we all have issues with our um, approaches from time to time, but the things I've done that I think are really helpful that have made a big difference for me, and I definitely do not see the FHL issue as much, I do um, a buttress plate for all of them. So I do a pretty big dissection to do the plate on there, but um, I make a real effort on the way in to keep the muscles in their own sheaths. So they stay in their kind of fascial covering. 
And then when I'm manipulating it, I actually use the widest Hohmann I can find or retractor so that you're getting a really broad surface area. Cause I think part of the damage to the FHL is just done by the injury. But part of it is things like putting in a self-retainer or putting in a narrow Hohmann that like presses on it for a long time and then it gets beat up. So anything you can do. And then of course I try to like relax whenever I can on the soft tissue, but being really as delicate as you can with your dissection and retraction, I do think it makes a difference. And then I don't actually usually splint them. I know some of my foot and ankle partners will splint or cast them for like six weeks. And I really try to let them get moving right away, which I think also really helps and encourage them to start moving their toes right away. So they're not like um, immobilized and potentially getting stiff in that way. So hopefully that answers the question. And I think that's a great point, Anna, of having to move their toes early, because I think sometimes that's why their FHL or their big toe gets tight. And I, you know, I don't always wouldn't have always thought to do that. But as I've seen a few patients with that, I do try to think to remind them to do that early. Yeah, they totally forget. And I even tell their, you know, significant other family member with them, I'm like, every day, grab their toes and wiggle it for them. And they're looking at me like I'm crazy. But I think it makes a big difference. It's also good to prevent the blood clots, too. It's just that yeah. you know, those squeezes are important. Yeah, I would say most of my patients, when I tell them to move their big toe or have someone else do it, it they come back to clinic like they've ne like I've never told them that before. That's a pretty specific thing to talk about, but it just shows kind of what patients do and don't remember sometimes. Um, what is everyone else doing? We talked to uh, Lori about what she's doing. What is what are you guys doing post-operatively in terms of like when are you letting them weight bear? um are you are you putting them in a cam boot at some point like how what do you what's your you know post-operative protocol for these we can start with anna and then then mark and then prison just because that's the order on my screen <laughs> sure so um i have become much more aggressive over the years um partly due to some people on this call's work but i do think we can let people walk sooner so Basically any injury that I have on any patient, ankle or otherwise, I let them start weight bearing at six weeks at the latest. So um, everybody at six weeks starts toe touch and advances to full weight bearing over the next six weeks. So by three months, they're fully weight bearing. And really the only exception I have to that rule is a true diabetic with neuropathy with true syndesmotic injury like ligamentous, not just bony injury, then I will make them stay off of it for eight to 12 weeks, but everybody else I advance and I give them a cam boot at the beginning. So like I said, they can start moving their ankle and getting it moving right away. Mark. So I, uh, I'm still probably in the non weight bearers anonymous club. Unfortunately, I, uh, I do, I do try to get them into uh, a walking boot or a non-walker as soon as possible and let them move their ankle at about two, between two to four weeks. Um, but I, I haven't been letting them officially, by my recommendation, bear weight until eight to 10 weeks uh, for non-diabetics. Uh, and then the diabetics, I, I do, I, I usually tell them not to bear weight for for 12 weeks, but God knows what they're doing against my recommendation. Uh, you know, they're probably putting weight on it the day after the surgery. So 
but I, you know, I, I agree. I think we can be a bit more aggressive, uh, but I, I still eight to 10 weeks is, is usually where I fall. Right. So I think Mark's actually highlighted exactly what I was about to say and the fact that there's what we tell patients to do and then there's what they actually do. And so um, one of the things that we're working on at the moment is actually uh, early weight bearing with uh, dynamic stabilization. And so I, I do think that um, we can probably get uh, people going a, a lot sooner. And this is with an isolated length stable fibulas fixed um, dynamic stabilization of syndesmotic injury. And so I think pretty universally up here anyway, early, early range of motion right away, and then progressing weight bearing, uh, even beginning at two weeks. Um, and we are trying to study that a little bit more systematically with using a uh, pressure insole so we can actually see what patients are up to. So hopefully some, something will come of that, hopefully, <laughs> to help us all out. That, that's cool. I'll tell you what, so what I've been doing is at two weeks, I start motion. And then at six weeks, I give them a two week by two week protocol. So 25% for two weeks, 50% for two weeks, 75% for two weeks, weaning out of the boot. And then as tolerated thereafter, and I give them a physical therapy prescription at their six week visit, which the therapists are instructed to use a scale to show them what the percentages are. And people seem to like that because they feel like they're getting something every two weeks. And they, they tend to be, I, I think, pretty uh, compliant, but that, that's that been my protocol so far. And by three months, they're full weight bearing and they seem pretty happy. So I don't know if it's if it's a patient's happiness thing or, or they're actually following it. <laughs> Albert, Andrew, are you guys doing anything different than what's kind of been mentioned? Uh, no, pretty similar to what Matt just said is what I do. Yeah, I'm pretty similar. Uh, eight weeks typically for syndesmotic injuries. Well, Prism, I'm with you. I'm two weeks. Uh, okay. So I, I, they start weight bearing is tolerated at two weeks. So we might have some joining papers, sister papers coming out soon because we're enrolling our last patient in that study. So that's wonderful. Congrats. I think oh, we all just need a little bit of support. So that's, that's great. <laughs> so you, like, what do you use for fixation? So I, I use um, uh, suture button. One, two? Usually just one. Um, and, uh, but I'm pretty, all my ankle, unless they're a neuropathic diabetic, uh, all my ankle fractures, doesn't matter what it is, they're going to start weight bearing at two weeks. Um, but I'm pretty aggressive with my fixation on posterior mouths. Um, I use fully threaded screws medial, on the medial mouth. So, uh, but I use just one suture button. Um, so, and we'll, I mean, who knows, I might be wrong. We'll see what happens when all these people come back in a year <laughs> with their, you know, with their CT scans and stuff. But right now it's, it seems to be working. I've not had any fail yet. Um, well, none in this group. I've had some other people fail, but um, it was like in, in diabetics and things like that. Not, I haven't had um, anyone fail like who is a normal you know not neuropathic person interesting i'll be interested in, i mean i would love to let him weight bear earlier and i feel more confident weirdly with flexible fixation than with screws you know i think it's probably going to hold tight um so 
you know, with my sort of screws and uh, flexible fixation, you know, maybe letting them white bear. I don't know, two weeks to me sounds like it's super early, but I'll let you guys tell me if that's the right answer. And, but I might do it sooner for sure than six weeks or than eight weeks. I, I do think that it is important that it was touched on uh, earlier that it length, length stability is important because the, the suture button has play. It's, it's specifically made to move a little bit and have some translation and anterior poster translation is fine because that's the normal motion of the ankle. But if it's a length unstable fibula, you'll see them shorten and you'll see that osteolysis that occurs in them and, and you can see that the tunnels don't line up anymore if the fibula is not length stable. So like for if I can't fix, if it's like a Mesa new or something and I can't fix it into a length stable, then I, I won't do suture, isolated suture button. I think that's important, the length stability. And I'll tell you, like in a sensate normal patient, they do self-limit. They really do. You let them weight bear as tolerated at two weeks, they're not weight bearing. They're, they're listening to their body and they're limiting themselves as they need to. Um, it just, it's hard to figure out who that patient is, I think. Um, we have a, we have a question um, that deals with late instability. So like, uh, let's say you fixed an ankle fracture and then your you've missed the syndesmotic injury and now they're coming back with instability or maybe you fixed it and it failed. What is, um, what is everyone's approach to dealing with that? Are you just uh, going in and putting new screws in? Are you using suture button? Are you reconstructing it? Does anybody have any thoughts on kind of late ankle instability from a missed syndesmotic injury? It depends on how late. Um, uh, for me, it depends on how late. If it's if it's in within the first few months and uh, uh, you know, the fibula was correctly fixed and is out to length, um, then you don't have to do a, you know, a fibular lengthening. Then uh, what I would do is I, I would debris the syndesmosis. I'd probably fix it with flexible fixation uh, suture button device. Um, and that's, that would be my approach uh, for, you know, the first six months or so. If you're talking late as in a few years, um, you know, that's, that's more where, and it's, it's not a desirable operation, but I've done a, I've, I've considered a syndesmotic fusion for, for those types of patients when it's been years uh, of instability. I agree with Mark, but I'll tell you the patients that I struggle with are the ones that come in that have, you know, two millimeters of syndesmotic widening and they're not symptomatic. I don't know what to do with them because I don't, um, you know, if they, at four months or six months, they're a little wider than they are on the other side. I obviously missed something in the operating room, but they don't have any symptoms. Again, it's hard for me to talk a lot of patients into going back to the operating room for that big surgery to keep them non-weight bearing for a fairly significant amount of time if they don't hurt, but I don't know if that's the right answer. I mean, I, I, you know, I probably don't follow enough of them long enough to see whether they get arthritis quickly, but um, I don't know. Does anybody else have thoughts on that? That's, I think that's tough. Uh, yeah, I, I would just have a, a discussion with them. Like, you know, your, your risk of arthritis is probably higher, uh, but if you're not symptomatic right now, it is hard to like, convince someone to go back for a surgery. That is a time I will, I'm sorry, Prism, go ahead. No, please go. <laughs> I was just gonna say sometimes 
Um, I haven't seen it often, but I think, like you said, maybe there's a piece in there that was, you know, from the original injury or something like that. And sometimes I have um, gotten a CT that's bilateral at that point to really understand whether it was fixed wrong originally and now has kind of, you know, pulled back because it was it was too tight, you know, in the beginning or anterior translated or something. Um, but also to see if there's something, you know, missing, like a fragment in there or something like that, because I have seen that before. Yeah, honestly, I was just going to say a very similar thing. I, I'm actually challenged sometimes by the diagnosis. So the patient's still symptomatic. It's sort of a subtle, is there instability, is there not? And I think that that's where the utility of any dynamic type of imaging, um, if you have that available, can be really, really helpful, or at least a bilateral CT, um, because the variability, as we all know, in, in cisuras uh, and syndesmotic anatomy is incredibly uh, variable, um, but definitely, you know, some pretty substantial uh, evidence to sort of support that bilaterality so we can use the other side as a template. Um, so I think dynamic, again, imaging if possible and bilaterality uh, can help at least make that diagnosis as a bony or ligamentous. Yeah, if they don't have any pain, I'm a, I'm a chicken because I can definitely make them worse. Uh, I know that. Uh, I, sometimes I've had patients that haven't necessarily had pain, but they've they've said that they've had a feeling of like instability when they go down for a squat or they are having difficulty going up and down stairs. And then I that gives me a little bit more comfort and being aggressive, but I'm with you. If they're they're totally asymptomatic, I, I always think I can make somebody a lot worse than they are. I'm, I'm totally in Mark's camp. If, if a patient uh, tells me they're doing well, I ignore the x-ray. I tell them, I don't you're an x-ray, treat a person. You're doing okay, you're good. <laughs> Uh, and then we had one other question about CT, like who is using weight bearing versus standard, uh, like to judge that situation where you have like chronic instability or like a dynamic type CT. I mean, I, I don't have access to a weight bearing CT scan, but the literature does show that it's beneficial if you have it, uh, especially for foot deformities. But so I'm using standard, but that's just because what I have. Anybody do anything different? Yeah, I would say kind of the, the utility of weight bearing also 4D CT is definitely emerging, but maybe not accessible for, for everywhere. And I, I think that that bilateral CT scan can really provide a lot of insight into diagnosis, reduction, um, asymmetry between the two sides. Um, the one thing I would say is um, we're really learning is that foot position really makes a difference. As we know, it's a joint. And so depending on the foot position, the syndesmosis looks different radiographically. So even those contralateral images in the operating room, really ensuring that you're using the same foot position, I think can really be helpful. I have a question. Well, so yeah. so I yeah. fixed my, my syndesmosis in the foot and maximal dorsiflexion. Is that what everyone's doing? Or are they positioning the foot in a certain way if you're not doing it open, if you're doing it closed? I put them at neutral dorsiflexion. I just, I know that the study says you can't over tighten it, but I mean, I don't know if you get, I've seen such unstable ankles that if I tighten it too much, or if I, I used to clamp them, you can spit the talus out the front in front of the tibia. So 
I don't know. I just, I feel like the safest thing is to just reduce it in neutral dorsiflexion. And that's how I have someone hold it while I put implants in and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm neutral. Yeah, I maximally dorsiflex and I don't clamp and I say don't over tighten the screw. Just when it feels tight, you're done. I don't know. I think I'm going to take the opportunity, another plug for the same position as the other side. So I think especially if you're using dynamic stabilization, then just ensuring that the x-rays that you're using on the other side and you're trying to replicate, you're using the same foot position to sort of tighten um, your device. Um, one thing we did in our RCT was we actually used the ACL tensioning uh, device, um, and that actually allowed us to standardize. Um, we used 20 newtons, um, and so you can actually you know, tighten the dynamic stabilization device and then place the ankle through a range of motion. You can actually see the creep come out of the system and then you can re-tighten. Um, and that at least seemed to not result in over-tightening in that cohort. Well, I think we're out of time now. And I, I would like to, uh, I really appreciate the uh, faculty and moderators. Um, this, we had to put this together very quickly. And so we appreciate you guys taking time out of your out of your busy clinical and daily lives and vacation time to, to meet with us and, and be a part of this journal club. And I uh, would like to thank all the participants who asked, who were asked questions and were engaged. And, um, and if you, and just remember, you can go and subscribe to the YouTube channel, the AO uh, uh, Trauma North America. Um, so thank you for everyone who joined and we really appreciate it.